Giving us a five-star review is the equivalent of swiping right on the Son of a Pitch podcast on Tinder. So if you like the sexy, dulcet tones of Max and Vince in your ear holes, you know what to do. Give us a five-star review and a little sexy comment. Cheers. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Dylan, you son of a pitch. In this episode of the podcast, both Max and I talk to Leif Stromness, Managing Director of Innovation and Strategy at DDB Sydney. We got talking about emotion at scale, not giving up on your job after one year, and growing some of the biggest brands in the world. In the pitch segment, Leif devises the strategy for the Yes campaign in an entirely hypothetical weed referendum, which is amazing. So stick around. You'll enjoy it. Let's get started. Yeah, nice. sweet as we're on. All right, we are rolling. Okay, Leif Stromness, welcome to the Son of a Pitch podcast. Thank you very much, and well pronounced there. Most people call me Leif Strom or <laughs> Loaf <laughs> Strime, or so Leif Stromness is bang on. Oh, Congratulations, oh, you're, you, you, you're, you're off to a very good start with me. There was only there was only a little bit of uh, YouTube research done before this, uh, in right, which you introduced yourself. <laughs> so I can't take full credit for it, but we did we did look at the archive tapes. Um, so I think to kick this one off, speaking of doing a bit of research before the the episode. Um, one thing that we've seen you talk about a lot in the media is this notion of emotion being one of the most important parts of strategy. Can you take us through how you got to that uh, kind of thinking or philosophy, as it were? Um, yes, I can. Um, I can talk about emotion for hours, but um, I think the very simple conceit in my thinking is how do humans want to live their lives? Um, and what I know about humans is we don't like to live our lives with uh, lots of cognitive load, as I call it. So brands that make humans think um, or worry or ponder just get lost immediately. Um, and emotion is the, is the shortest cut to living in flow, to living how we want to live our lives uh, in emotion. So I... I I'm of the firm belief that um, if brands don't emotionalize themselves, they are leaving so much growth on the table uh, immediately. Um, and any brand that can ease cognitive load, in fact, the best advertising, I think, works at a subconscious level. Ads that don't feel like ads work beautifully well. Um, so emotion is the key for me. Um, and just think about your own life. You know, you, you like to live, both of you young men like to live your life with emotion. So do I, because it's easy. It's instinctive. It's intuitive. Um, I go with my gut. We love it. We love it as humans. So I just start with, how does the human want to live their life? And advertising needs to respond. Because if advertising tries to make people do something they don't want to do, it always fails. It's a very weak force. Advertising is an incredibly weak force for behavior change. Don't let uh, your marketing professors or your strategic planning director tell you it's a powerful force. It is a very weak force for behavior change. It only works well 
if it reinforces existing behavior or it emotionalizes. Um, so I'm a, I'm a massive advocate for emotionalizing everything in communication right down to the programmatic banner. How's that? Yes. Mm. See, this is why I kind of brought it up actually it was because you see a lot of planners these days, especially junior planners, when they're picking up kind of the, the core fundamental skills or the frameworks and, and the kind of knowledge behind how to do strategy. You can romanticize this thing into becoming maybe uh, formulaic or, uh, or seeing a kind of a formula behind what we do. You know, when, you, when you look at the sharp stuff and you think, oh, all I have to do is create a couple of six-second ads, a couple of 15-second ads, make them distinctive, show some colors, do all of those things. But then you kind of leave the emotion bit out at the end. Is there a way to kind of educate yourself to understanding how to deliver the emotional side of a brand um, in the best way possible for that brand? How do you get to what you need to say emotionally for a brand? I mean, I think, you know, make no mistake, rational advertising works. It just doesn't work very well. So advertising works in many ways. I, I, I encourage planners to form a view themselves of how advertising works. And the best way I know is to do research and to understand how it works. Because if, if, if what we're after is efficiency, digital programmatic is the answer every time. It's cheap, mm. it drives a sale, um, but it drives a short-term sale, which decreases in intensity over time, becomes less effective. If the metric is effectiveness, you very quickly get to emotional priming combined with some sort of activation media. Um, so I think it's a pure growth conversation. It, you know, it, it, I always say to my planners and the guys at DDB, if you work at DDB, you're in the growth business. If you don't want to be in the growth business, go and live in Nimbin. But if you work at, if you work at DDB, you're in the <laughs> growth business. a different business. kind of growth business. Uh, business guy, exactly. It's <laughs> on my mind now, give, the brief you've given me. But um, we're in the growth business. We are agents of growth. And I every data point I look at ever says that emotional priming is way more effective at driving long-term, profitable, sustainable growth than short-term rational activation. Mm. Um, so get to, a, get to a conclusion yourself. Um, you know, we are super proud in this agency of having clients for 40, 50 years. McDonald's we've had for 48 years, Volkswagen 20 years. The only reason they still clients is because we drive long-term growth for them. If we were, you know, driving a three-month sales spike, I'd be fired. DDB would be fired. We'd all be fired. The clients would be fired. Um, so get to a view yourself as, you know, what sort of, what sort of career do you want? Do you want a long-term career? where you've helped brands grow sustainably over a long period of time, or do you want a short three-month growth trajectory that fails in the next three months uh, and you get fired? Um, so, there's the, look, the, the, as I say, advertising works in many, many ways. Mm. Um, the most effective way to drive long-term sustainable growth is through priming people emotionally. I call it emotional advantage. Right. How do you give brands an emotional advantage? When brands have emotional advantage, they win in the long term. They they less sense. People are less sensitive to price promotion. Um, they more inclined to buy them. It works. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It gives for years and years and years. In fact, I went to a very good uh, Mark Ritson presentation the other day. You guys might have been there at um, Adweek. Uh, no, did we, not get a ticket. We were, we were planning to do something at Adweek, but they well, probably would have kicked us out. In we were going to like wear sandwich boards promoting the podcast. Oh, uh, <laughs> nice, nice, We have, nice. we well, have better, better insights here. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had, to, I had to follow Ritson, which was 
terrifying on the stage. But he, wow. he, he created a simple metaphor, which I really liked. He's like, you know, there's a tree and it bears fruit. And he, had a, he, he, he does the world's ugliest PowerPoint presentations, but they're just so funny because they're so daggy. Yeah. Yeah. And he had this bucket coming and the bucket was watering the, the, the tree and the, the fruit was growing. He said, like, that's, that's emotional priming. That's brand building. And then this ruddy great hand comes in like the hand of God and starts picking the fruit. He says, and this is activation. Right. <laughs> and he says, and this is what's happening in Australia. And the bucket got smaller and smaller. And four hands came and started picking. And this poor tree got raped within like three minutes. He says, that's the problem. We're activating. We, we're plucking the fruit. We aren't growing any more fruit. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a massive advocate for putting money into building brands, emotionally priming people, um, you know, and then picking the fruit when appropriate. And both are really important. We don't want to just grow fruit that falls to the ground and dies. We want hands to pick the fruit, but we want, don't want 10 hands in one bucket. We want one bucket and one hand, or maybe one bucket and two hands. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, as I say, I, go, the data is super clear. Emotional yeah. priming combined with good, sensible activation is the most profitable way to grow a brand and defend its growth for the long term and we're in the business of long-term growth mm. let me tell you you know advertising agencies are the most sustainable businesses in the world if we help clients grow because every client needs growth mm. and if we're helping clients grow for 42 years or 48 years in the case of mcdonald's i'm still employed they still pay me a lot of money and my fees over those 40 years are astronomical, but I've helped them grow. <laughs> yeah. So that's good for me. Good yes. for my career. It's like charging how consultants charge exactly. based on um, exactly. profit. Going back to what you were saying before about behavior change. So what's the difference in your mind between emotionally priming and creating a behavior change? Well, you know what? Emotion can do incredible things. The, the, on, the only way to... The only, the only way emotion works is to make people feel happy um and as i say advertising is a weak force there are very few campaigns that can make people feel bad and drive a result so smoking cessation speeding probably mm. but most brands if you make a human feel bad they just turn away from you because once again i don't care about brands i don't care about marketing i don't care enough for you to make me feel bad. So making people feel happy is the magic kind of quotient. Mm. So, you know, our philosophy in this agency is how do we drive emotion at scale, make millions of people feel the same thing at the same time, and we tend to see a, a behavior change follow very quickly. And Google search is an amazing proxy for us in this. In this, You know, we, we run Westpac advertising. That's about priming mm. everyone in category. 24 million Australians who use a bank, everyone in category to feel something for Westpac. Google search goes off the charts. That is a proxy for behavior change. They're not actually buying a home loan, but maybe they are inquiring about something. So emotion at scale, behavior change tends to follow emotion at scale. And the, the, the emotion at scale is the gift because 24 million Aussies think differently but they can all feel the same thing when I give them a universal emotion like love mm. or happiness mm. or, you know, revenge, but like good revenge. Um, 
that's that's emotional scale and behavior change tends to follow that millions of aussies feeling the same thing at the same time is when good behavior change happens i love those westpac ads the the bigger bird is fantastic yeah and, and i'll tell you a great story i mean, maybe maybe this is confidential but okay. um <laughs> inside scoop uh, we, we, we can cut it out later yeah that's, that's but, but, you might have to we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards but um you know brand consideration is this gla- glacial metric that you kind of go oh the brand consideration hasn't moved all the product metrics have shifted through the roof. And this is, once again, the, the gift of emotional priming. We're not advertising home loans or credit cards or mortgages or loans, but everything's shifting up from a product point of view. So even though people are kind of rationally going, oh, yeah, it's just advertising. I don't know if I prefer Westpac or not. The product metrics are through the roofs. I know it's working for mm. us. And that's, once again, that's the gift of emotional priming. It works at a level on people that don't even understand they don't even understand why they're being for, for compelled to inquire about Westpac, but they're feeling good about the brand. Yeah. So I'm not, you know, this, as I said, this consideration lever, mm-hmm. people hate banks. Banks is a, you know, Royal Commission. That's a glacial metric, but the product consideration, we've gone from fourth to number one on all of those without advertising any product. So well, it's interesting you mentioned happiness as being the most effective emotion for behavior change. Because when, when I watch those ads, I'm not sure if you feel the same way, Vince. I'm not sure if all of them do make me feel yeah. happy. Mm. Some of them are, are quite sad in a sweet sort of way, but are, do you think they're all happy? And are you trying to achieve that happiness emotion with each so of those? I think, um, I think sophisticated storytelling, there is an arc of emotions. I think where it resolves. So we, you're right, the, the topics are quite dark. There's death, yeah. there's divorce, there's you know immigration, there's redundancy. And you do take people through an arc of emotions, but they all resolve positively. So the guy who dies gets the most wonderful send-off from people mm. who mimic him with his big bushy moustache. That, even though you don't think it's a, a, think of it as a happy ending in in the advertising sense, um, that is a very happy ending. And when we when we when we test it on, you know, system one using an emotional emotional barometer, people feel very happy by the end of that ad. And similar with our divorce ad, there is something about the couple going through struggles and then making it at the end, which is enough of a positive feeling. And, and if you just had happiness right the way through, it, it wouldn't work nearly as well. You've got to have those arcs in the story of despair and then resolve somewhere positive. And they, they do resolve positively. And that's the, that's the mm. sophistication of emotional priming that's the sophistication of good storytelling mm. it's not just coke happiness factory where yeah. it's off the charts <laughs> happiness that doesn't yeah. work actually that doesn't work it works for three seconds and people right. lose interest um so it, it's a it's a subtle art um and that's why we are valuable as partners to business because we understand that subtle art and can do things that humans don't even know they are being primed by right. and, and and this is why it's a dangerous art and you kind of go are we in the business of manipulation? Bloody oath, we are. We we're, we're you know we work so below the radar. Good advertising, for me, works below the radar. Mm. People don't even know they're being affected by advertising. That's the best advertising. Otherwise, I just block you. Right. Otherwise, if I don't like you, I don't watch a Harvey Norman. I'm prepared to walk away from a Harvey Norman ad. But when Westpac plays, I'm kind of like the music. I like the characters. I get seduced. I love uh, those subtle notes of red throughout the ad as well. Yeah, totally. Little chopper sting at the end. There's little branding cues right through. Um, so it's a it's a subtle art. Um, it's 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 not a blunt instrument. It's a it's a it's a finely tuned instrument. But it's takes a sophisticated client to understand how advertising works, and it takes 
a lot of effort on the agency's part to talk to clients about how advertising actually works because if they're in the persuasion model, they ain't going to persuade in the short term. If, mm-hmm. they, if they're in the activation model, that ain't going to work. But if they understand the power of emotional priming as a long-term driver of what I call emotional advantage over the long term, and we've worked very hard with a lot of our clients, McDonald's, Westpac, Virgin, Australia, for them to understand the power of this emotional priming, man, it pays back in the long run like you cannot believe. And mm. you know, McDonald's is a case in point. Their business is in rude health. Um, and they understand emotional priming. They understand more than KFC, more than Hungry Jacks, the power of, of emotionally priming humans. Yeah, wait, is rude health good or bad? Root health is, is very good. We're very good. I, I, if I'm in root health... Obscenely large profits. <laughs> if I'm in root health, I'm feeling good. Okay. Yeah, root health is, is a good thing. Very good thing. Um, and I, I, know, I know you guys work on Hungry Jacks, or one of you work on Hungry Jacks. Um, <coughs> um, my agency certainly does. Oh, did? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I guarantee, you know, Hungry Jacks is extremely jealous about the emotional relationship that McDonald's has with, with humans. Um, and does everything to copy McDonald's on that front. But McDonald's is untouchable because it's been something that's been out for 40 years or 50 years in Australia, and it's only McDonald's can do ads like that. No one else can. I think people would go, Hungry Jacks, why are you advertising to me in this way? Why are you seducing me? I don't like it. Mm. Tell me about your burgers. But McDonald's gets away with it because we've done it for a long time, and people are primed for that brand. Mm. So you've been at DDB for 19 years. When you were starting out at DDB, did you hold this philosophical view about advertising in the same way? So did you always have this macro view where you were kind of thinking about your career in the long term and about the brands that you'd be working on over the long term? Or have you only developed this, you know, I'm working on these brands for the long term since? No, I was completely seduced by short-termism when I, worked, mm. when, I, when I walked into DDB in 1999. Um, yeah, I was here for a short time and I was going to make my career as successful as possible. I was seduced by the internet. Um, I did my thesis <laughs> back in 1992 and then the title of the thesis is was what is this thing called the internet? So I was an internet. <laughs> I, I'm very old. I, I was an internet um, kind of innovator. I thought it was the answer to everything. But the more I looked at it, the more I once again, once again went back to understanding human beings. They don't like to be sold to. Um, and I kind of formed this view about long-term emotional priming over a long period of time. And, and when you work in an agency for 20 years, you do get the benefits of seeing <laughs> the rhythms of business um, and yeah uh, you know you become more I think reading a lot about what works and what doesn't work writing FEs and trying to understand why things are not effective because as I said ROI is the most bullshit metric in advertising yeah. if, if I want to measure an ROI I'll just spend nothing and every dollar is 100% ROI yeah. but if I'm, if I'm in the world of effectiveness emotional priming is unsurpassed let me tell you it, it cannot be beaten um so that's what I'm talking to my clients about is like long-term growth is about a long-term strategy. And it's very hard, man. You know, your Hungry Jack's client are on a three-month treadmill with shareholders and sales. And so are my clients. But you've got to do both. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to build for long-term while you're activating the short-term. You've got to pick the fruit and, and, and grow the fruit at the same time. And that's the very tough decisions you have to, the, the tough conversations and the tough decisions the clients have to make to forfeit some short-term growth for growth in the future. And that's the only way 
we've been with McDonald's for 48 years. If we were about picking the fruit, I would have been gone in 2001. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's a choice you make, you know, and you know, you can bounce around and you can bounce to the next agency and the next agency and do your short-term thing and look like a rock star. But at the end of 10 years, I'll look at your CV and go, what happened? What, what happened? Why are you bouncing around? Have you not... I want a five-year story in an agency so I can see what you have done over lo- the long term for a client. So I'm really, I'm really strong on that with the young kids I see. It's like, I'm, I, I don't care if you've worked 10 places for a year. I'd rather talk to the guy where you've worked for three years and tell me what you've done to drive growth. Hmm. Brilliant. And now it's time for a break. Are you a creative soul who feels crushed by the irrepressible reality of hilarious delusion you live in every day of your life? Perhaps you know more about XL formatting than your significant other's private parts, resulting in a deep and throbbing pain emanating from your heart as you constantly ponder your sycophantic rise to the top of your organizational food chain. You may have even found yourself tapping your foot non-stop in the doctor's office as the pulsating flow of blood from your head convinces you that the work-related stress disease you read about in National Geographic one time is about to make your eyes pop from your skull atop a geyser of hot steam. Well, have I got a deal for you. Miami Ad School are offering a strategic planning boot camp that is almost sure to guarantee you a life filled with ever-changing, mind-bending creative challenges that help you make an actual difference within the world. Not only does it put you in touch with some of the world's best strategic minds, like the ones on this podcast, but you'll be investing in a chance to start your life anew. And the best thing? Given you're a loyal listener to the Son of a Pitch podcast, we'll waive your application fee so there's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. Just email us at podcastsoap at gmail.com if you're interested. That's podcastsoap, S-O-A-P, podcastsoap at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the good stuff. What do you think about Burger King's strategy in the United States because Burger King is obviously Hungry Jack's here um, and they're pulling this kind of challenger, let's go fame, 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 but still short-term activation, but it's very much fame. Um, and there is some emotion there if it's not a laugh. What do, what do you think of that kind of strategy in that case? Yeah, so it's a very good question. So we, we, we got our ass handed to us this year by McDonald's because Burger King had a phenomenal year at Cannes. It was embarrassing. They won, they won everything. We won nothing for McDonald's. And they are the jester. We are the innocent. We are as cheesy as hell. They are, they are outrageous. And their whole modus operandi is let's have fun at McDonald's expense. So <laughs> It's a pretty good mission statement. Yeah, so... The irresponsible thing for me to do with McDonald's is let's fight back. Let, let's, let's mimic them and become the jester. No, 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 no. We are the innocent. We are cheesy. Let me tell you, our consumers like us to be cheesy. They like the fact that we are family, we're accessible. And who's bigger Who's bigger? and who will we, who we be bigger in the next 20 years? I 100% guarantee it with McDonald's. Because I, I, I think Burger King have a very good strategy and it's right for them. Is it more effective than McDonald's strategy? I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. And and the irresponsible thing for us to do is to go, let's mimic them. We they are mimicking us because we are super successful. And let's be let's be clear, consumers don't buy one brand, they buy a repertoire. Mm. Everyone in the category of fast food buys a repertoire of brands. 
They buy me as McDonald's more often than they buy Burger King, and that's all that counts. So when the chips are down, when it comes about convenience and who do I feel good about, I think we win. I think we win in the long term. And once again, this is this is a danger when you have a year like the one we've just had where clients go, we, we want to kick their ass. It's like we need to be very careful. We don't lose what makes us emotional with, with humans. And it isn't the jester. It isn't the jester. It's the innocent. It's the fact that I can go there. It's everywhere. It's accessible. At McDonald's is so consistent with what it does, um, and that's a strength. So that's the conversation we're having with McDonald's. So yeah, I I am quite jealous of the work they're doing. Do I think it's going to last? Do do I think they're going to outgun us in the long term? I don't. Right. So if you were Hungry Jacks in Australia, you wouldn't adopt that strategy. Well. You, you can, and you might you, you might win for three or four months. I, mm. I'd, if I were Hungry Jacks in Australia, I'd go, what is the long-term strategy for me yeah. to win? I, you know, it's very easy to think short-term. It's so seductive. It's so beguiling to be a three-month hero. I want to be a 10-year hero, you know? Um, so... I, I think I think McDonald's in Australia is 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 very strong. I think Hungry Jacks has got a lot of ground to make up to become a, the preferred brand. Um, so the only m- metric I think about is w- 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 which do people feel better about? And I'm um, I'm pretty sure a lot of people feel better at McDonald's for for a multitude of reasons, even if they won't say it in a in a. You know, don't don't ask people to observe what they observe their behavior. They shop at McDonald's a lot. Mm. It's their restaurant of choice in, in fast food. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's a super question because it's it's very easy to get seduced by what's just happened at Cannes, and it's very easy for us to kind of go, they are killing us. No, they're not. We're killing them. Our sales are, McDonald's has never been better in rude health. Never, never been better. We, our strategy's working. We, no need for us to adjust our strategy. If there is a major discontinuity, like everyone goes, it's all about health and fast food is dead, that's when we'll think again. But, you know, they're not, they're not challenging us from a, from, a, you know, from a culture point of view or challenging us from a, a, um, a, a category trend point of view. They're just challenging us from an advertising point of view, which is great. Mm-hmm. Guarantee we're going to win in the long term. I guarantee it. Yeah. As, as, as long as we don't go off the ball and become arrogant and fixated, you know, we, we have got to read what's happening in, the, in, in, in consumers' worlds. And, you know, the biggest, the biggest mistake is you kind of go, the trend is all towards healthy, mm-hmm. McDonald's is irrelevant. No, it's not. It's as relevant as ever in a slightly different way. Pe- pe- people's behavior yeah. doesn't change quickly. Why is it a disadvantage to be the jester, though? Or are you only saying that because you think it's a short-term play? No, no, I don't think it's a disadvantage to be the jester yeah. at all. Um, I think that's the right positioning for, for, for Burger King. Mm. Do, I think it, do I think it's more powerful than the innocent? I don't. Why is that? Mm. Well, be, be, because of our size and scale and because of our consistency. I'm being the, we've been the innocent since 1972 in this country. Sure. We've always been the innocent. So that's our strength. We've got legacy. We've got incumbency. We've got the best restaurants, the best locations with great advertising. I, I think we're in a very strong position. I'm not worried at all. So using the example of um, the burn that ad campaign where people could go up to uh, a competitor's campaign in the US, a burger ad, and scan it and it would burn that ad. Is that doing? Uh, is that driving results for McDonald's because McDonald's is still somehow being referenced 
in that process and in that activation. Yeah. Once again, consumers don't think deeply about it. We think it's the <laughs> funniest thing yeah. and it's like, it's awesome. I guarantee most consumers wouldn't know who the ad was for and who they were burning. It's like, oh, that was a bit of fun. Yeah. Who, 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 who's, who's the biggest brand? Who gets the law of double jeopardy? McDonald's. Mm. Yeah. So anything that happens in the category that is category generic, McDonald's benefits the most. So gotcha. I think it was quite, it was a clever ad. The, the other one I really liked was, uh, there was burn, the other one was um, where you had to go to McDonald's with it and you ordered a, uh, um, you got a free Whopper at, at a McDonald's location. That was fun and cool. But once again, it's a short-term activation. Yeah. How, how do they sustain that? for five or ten years that that's what i want to okay. see how, how, how does that strategy live for 10 years or even five years that that'll be cool to see they've got a very hot marketing director very hot um he's driving a certain tone and a certain style of work i think it's very cool mm. um let's see how let's see what next year looks like and the year after and the year after and the year after that that that's that's what i'm thinking of as long as you can sustain it just the just is super powerful mm. super powerful i feel but like not, but not more powerful I kind of feel like, so we're, obviously we're sitting here in DDB at the moment, Doyle, Dane, Birnbach, like probably some of the considered to be gods of the advertising industry and they kind of pioneered this thing in a way and they don't have rhetoric that's very dissimilar from what you are talking about right now. Um, but a lot of people have seemed to forget kind of the lessons from DDB. Are there DDB lessons that, you're kind of that you have an unfair advantage of over other agencies you know in in today's market just because people have have forgotten where it all started and what and what people were going for back then i, I think that's an awesome question because i'm so pleased that so many agencies are walking away from advertising i look at jwt becoming wonderman thompson and young and rubicon becoming what are they becoming um a long acronym vml yr Exactly to that point. The story we're telling here is is a story that Birnbeck was telling in 1949. The difference is now we have the proof. Mm. He he knew it instinctively because he was a very clever advertising guy and he was a great thinker and a great creative. I now have the proof. So Wendy Clark, our global CEO, when I shared the work we were doing in Australia around emotional priming, she's like, I'm doubling down on that, and I'm going back to Doyle Dane Birnbeck. So we've gone back to our original logo. So while Thompson is running away from advertising, going, we're not, we're we're a, we're, we're a data business, and YNR is going, we're we're with those guys. Mm. DDB's going, no, no, we're going back to DDB. In fact, we're going to call ourselves Doyle Dane Birnbeck, an advertising agency, because the insights he had, which worked at the creative revolution back in 1949, I now I now have the proof that that works. So it's, it's a cool question, and yes, it's not a new story, but now we have the proof, so we are doubling down on that story. Do you, it's, it, so when, when you say it, they intuitively knew what they were doing back then, things don't change that much. Surely people intuitively know what they're doing now and might not have you know, come up with the studies to be able to prove it yet. But a lot of people throw away their intuition because they have all of this data available in front of them and it's there and it looks great on a PowerPoint when you can put 55% of people did this thing. So is there a cautionary tale in that? Do you think, should you, should we ask people to lean more into their intuition and trust their gut in that way? And if so, 
how do you do it with uh, some sort of uh, confidence, I guess? Well, go back to humans. Human emotion is unchanging. Mm. I know the world is changing and we've got all sorts of newfangled technology, but the idea of belonging fundamentally is the idea of belonging. So exactly to your point, humans the, the humans are not changing. Mm. Humans are unchanging. The, the opportunity is to attach unchanging humans to the changing world. The idea of belonging still holds true. But the way I used to belong in the old days was around the campfire, mm. you know, via geography, then via the church maybe, institutions. Now I belong via communities of interest on Facebook and social media. It's still the same need of belonging. So we get confused between, oh, new technology is changing humans. It's not changing humans at all. Mm. Humans are unchanging. We have been, this evolutionary change that is being driven by technology is, is, is in the now. Yeah. Our, our emotions are unchanging, and that's the gift of, of emotion once again. It is unchanging. It's forever relevant. And the opportunities to tap the unchanging human to the changing world, that's the big opportunity as I see it. I really like your phrasing of how we think that uh, the mind is a story processor, not a mm. logic processor. Yeah. Uh, how did you come to form that that belief? Because it sounds like it's it's influenced by behavioral economics and. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read you know Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. I've read a lot of um, Christopher Booker's stuff. Um, it, it's once again, it's back. It's back to how we want to live our lives. Sure. You know, if I can tell you a story about a brand and it emotionalizes you, you will say that's my story now, and you will tell it on. If I tell you a rational fact belongs to no one it's uninteresting mm. so you know most of our m most of what we, we believe about the world depends on the quality mm. of the story i can tell about the world so if i give you a great story to tell yeah. about a brand I, i'm pretty sure that will touch you emotionally and you'll be able to repeat that and that's why the jester yeah. is a great story to tell for burger king and the innocent is a great story to tell for mcdonald's because i intrinsically understand the story of the innocent I intrinsically understand the story of the jester. And this is, once again, this is why stories are so powerful, mm. so powerful for, for business, so powerful for, for advertising. And CEOs want to tell a story about their business. Analysts want to tell a story about a business when they're writing a story about a business. Mm. It, it works everywhere. It mm. is, um, you know, for me, it's the bedrock of emotion, emotionalizing brands is about good storytelling. And you know, I, I wrote quite a bit of stuff around the uh, election this year, um, and I sort of opened up by saying neither the Liberal Party nor the Labour Party have a story. And um, so that was true, but I quickly then understood that uh, it was interesting that um, Morrison chose a fear story, and... Um, who was the Labour leader? Uh, Bill Shorten. Uh, sh short, short, Shorten ch chose <laughs> a hope story. man in the world. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. You just made a massive point there. Yeah. Um, exactly, most forgettable man in the world. But, yep. but I went, oh, they have now found their story. And the prediction I made was that fear is a much more powerful story. And it turned out to be a more powerful story. I'm not saying I, I kind of predicted the outcome. Mm. But the fear, the fear story is a super powerful story. It's more powerful than the hope story. It's back to... Humans are emotional, and when we fear something, we act. Hope is a long-term thing that's a bit more passive, a bit more slow burn. Fear is in the here and now. So it was a genius move by Morrison. And, you know, I was kind of – I didn't predict that outcome, but I could see the beginnings of their – their narrative started to form yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. And 
the hope story was massive on hope and such an overreach and so complicated. Everyone went, that's amazing in the future. My God, I'm, gonna, I'm dying right now and Morrison's got a solution right now. The fear story connected very strongly with, with Aussies. So they, they, they told, they, by the end, they got to great stories. They had nothing in the beginning. Yeah. There was nothing. But then they got to their narrative and that's when the election really took off and it was very clear the stories they were telling were different. Now, I did write down this thing that you wrote in that specific article where you said, if our beliefs are determined by the quality of the story we can tell, big politics is in trouble. What do you mean if our beliefs are determined by the quality of the stories we can tell? Well, I was, I was kind of horrified that how, how, how politics had fallen in this country. You know, the, the Gough Whitlam story mm, on the hill it's time, it's time was mm. a wonderful rallying cry there was no leadership in politics there is no leadership in politics in this country um so i was kind of talking like as a nation if our beliefs as a nation are formed by the quality of the story the nation is telling us we're in big trouble and big politics is in big trouble because there ain't no story i still maintain we haven't really got a narrative in this country mm. america is much clearer i think the battle lines are drawn very evenly always between the Republicans and the Democrats. And the Republican story is always around someone's trying to take something what we love away from us. It's time to take it back. You know, mm. it's, a, it's a drawing a line in the sand story. The Democrats always tell a quest story. What's the, what, you know, society is unjust. America is a beacon for ju justness and we have got to get that back. And it's playing out perfectly right now. But at least that's a, that, that's a story I kind of understand. You know, in this country, it's it's less clear now. Labour has been a working class, every man kind of story. Liberal has been slightly different. I find both of them collapsing in the middle now, and I don't quite know what the story is. Mm. So all, all I'm kind of saying is, it, as a nation, if we could find a narrative that we could rally behind, that party would be in, 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 in the pound seats, I reckon. So in your opinion, not to put you on the spot, but what do you think the antidote to fear is? What would you tell... For the story on on the left, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think I think hope's the right story yeah. for for the left. Always the right because it's about an aspirational class rising, but it needs to be more. It needs to be more attainable right now. You know, it's why superannuation never works because I, you know you guys and myself, even in my kind of old age, I I, I care about today. I, I'm not worried about when I'm 65. Mm. Um, so hope needs to hope is a great story right now. Right, refugees is a great hope story. You know, um, the wall is a great hope story in America, fighting the war. We need one of those, I think, in Australia right now. A hope story that I can actually get behind immediately. The environment could be that. Mm. You know, refugees could be that. But I don't know. You know, I, I find Labour flip-flopping on those and not be really clear on their position. Everyone's so scared of it. They, they're in a short-term election cycle. Yeah. They're in a short-term election cycle. It's the scourge of democracy, unfortunately. Mm. You know, Trump's in a in a fight for his life. He's going to say whatever people want to hear. Uh, it's probably why China's going to rise because they take a 50-year view on politics. They don't have to. They take a 100-year view. Yeah. Belt and Road is about the next 100 years. I mean, that's why they are going to win unequivocally. Mm. We, are, we, are, we are all in a... Sh democracies are all in a short-term yeah. survival mode, whereas that's China's taking a 100-year view, a long-term view. The Greek proverb that uh, great civilizations are built when men plant trees they know they'll never sit under. Brilliant. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah.
I think uh, Paul Keating used to talk a lot about China when he was around and to see that kind of flourish in today's day and age and China starting to take over, you yeah. kind of, you can look back and track these things, you know, yeah. over time. Um, do you do a lot of, a lot of historical research on your brands when you're looking for that story and you're looking to craft that next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it may be? You've done lots of research on me. I, that, we always start with the history. Um, I mm. think, um, you know, we are so quick to jump to the new and shiny thing. What's the next jester? Oh, let's be the jester. I, I reckon you've got to go back. We do a thing called brand archaeology where we kind of mine the mm. brand from the beginning because the clues are all there. You know, I did a session with Volkswagen last week. Um, you just look at the history of Volkswagen and you know what the answer is. You don't have to do like some sort of segmentation analysis on what consumers are after. The 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 the, the answers are all in the history of the brand. Um, so we every session starts with what do we know about our past? Where have we been most successful? Where have we lost our way? Mm. Every brand loses its way. Like the clues in where we've been successful and where we've lost our way for me, is 90% of, of how you know where you need to go in the future. Huh. So, yeah, it's kind of like uh, everyone says history repeats itself, right? So, uh, a lot of bad things happen over and over again. So, you're just kind of course correcting, I guess, looking yeah, I mean, at the cautionary tale. Yeah, and obviously, you want to know what's happening in, in the world around culture and consumer trends, but so much of brands are unchanging, you know, and... People don't want brands to change. So if, if Volkswagen suddenly became a sporty sports car, people go, no, you're not. And we, <laughs> we, we, we could spend a trillion dollars in advertising. I still reckon we'd still be the same old Volkswagen they know and love. Yeah, yeah. So why fight that? As I said, advertising is a, is a weak force. People form their views over long periods of time based upon their behavior. And great advertising reinforces that and makes me – you know, reinforces the why I like that brand. It doesn't. It doesn't work well to change my behavior about that brand unless the brand fundamentally, the vehicles fundamentally change. That's a different story. But they're not going to change. It's mm. the people's car. You know, it's for it's for everyone. I I saw a quote from you once that said, uh, you know, there are people out there that are the innovators. Then there are people out there that are the tweakers, and then there are the people out there like us who are the implementers. You know, we we put we we go back to what people innovated, and we actually do it right and well. Uh, are you still carrying on that tradition now? More than ever, and I I, I want to restate our clients from brand management to brand maintenance. Because if I'm a brand manager, I want to manage the brand. I'm going to change it. Whereas if your title is brand maintenance. My role is to maintain the momentum of their brand, hopefully upwards. Um, so I, I'm still massively keen on that. As I say, brands are brands are enduring things. Humans don't change. Humans aren't interested in brands. The more we change brands, the more we leave growth on the table. Um, you know, it it takes it takes a lot of effort to change people's views about a brand. They are disinterested disinterested in the first place. How do we keep the momentum going upwards, building on what mm. is powerful about the brand? Um, yeah, it's, it, and I, as I say, I've seen I've seen it work for our, our clients over a long, long period of time. Yeah, it's really easy to get sucked into that allure of the modernist kind of progressiveness, where we're always building towards the future, something new, something new, something mm. new, adding on top, adding on top. So it's interesting to hear you talk about maintain. Is that when we talk about sustaining a brand? What if a brand's in a really 
terrible place. Surely you got to move. Absolutely. No, you are, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm making a point that um, most humans don't care about brands. And mm. every time we change a logo, we think it's fundamental. Consumers go, where's my brand? Mm. I, I can't find my brand. I'll buy something else. Yeah. If, if there is a major discontinuity in the market, and that's why you do need to re- revise and look at what's happening in your category and, your, and, and in culture. You know, health is not a trend. Health is a mainstream thing in, in the world now. McDonald's has got to be very aware of health. But for us to go, we're a health brand. Mm. Consumers to go, I don't buy you for health. I buy you for convenience to feel good, a moment of happiness. Let's take some of the sugar out. Let's take some of the salt out. Those are the sorts of things we can do, but for us to become a health brand is is not going to work. Yeah, it's just not going to work, you know. So I think, yeah, brand, brands do, you know, brands do go out of out of business. Kodak went out of business, but they knew digital was coming. They just didn't have the balls to adapt to that. You got to have the balls to adapt, but you know, don't. I'm 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 not advocating for no change. I'm advocating I'm advocating for sensible, slow change mm. that. It, it it doesn't make people wonder where you are or wonder what's happened to you. It it seldom works. There's always a loss of growth when that happens. Always a loss of growth. And often brands go back to what they were before, and growth carries on like like, like that blip never happened. There's so many examples. History is replete with those sorts of examples. So that, that that's my countenance to clients: is why are we changing this? Tell me again. Why are we changing the logo? Why are we doing this? Is anyone worried about mm. the logo? Is anyone worried about it? I think you need a very good reason to to mess with the brand. Is my feeling just because you leave growth on the table? We're in the growth business. Mm. If I wasn't in the growth business, if I was in the creative business, I'd go. Let's change everything. That's yeah. what we do. We're about changing everything. We're in the growth business, and if you're in the growth business, you change as little as possible because that interrupts growth. Speaking of uh, growth, should we? Uh, I think that's a pretty good segue to the pitch. And uh, what we have on today. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what will be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo! Legal cannabis has had a bumpy journey in Australia. It was first outlawed in 1928, when Australia signed the 1925 Geneva Convention on Opium and Other Drugs. It was at that time cannabis was grouped into the same category as morphine, cocaine and heroin. However, attitudes are changing. A major push to legalise recreational marijuana has been launched in the ACP. The Australian Greens Party have introduced a bill into Parliament proposing a regulated legal cannabis market for adults. Before this motion to legalise recreational marijuana use is written into law, a cowardly government wants to poll the public to take the pressure off of them. In this entirely hypothetical situation, our guest has been put in charge of the Yes campaign. The task? Create the strategic direction for the Yes campaign and the upcoming hypothetical weed plebiscite. Cool. Yeah. So, Leif, how did you go, mate? We, we, we talked it up a little bit before it, with all the political talk, so I'm, I'm kind of I'm yeah. interested to see where you come at with this one. And just for, well, the, oh, sorry, just for the listener, Leif is doing this completely off the cuff, I, I, which will make I, it even more impressive. I, I, I like to live my life in flow emotionally, be spontaneous, so this is going to be a very spontaneous response. So, Max, I really like your brief. I think that's, um, that's uh, a super interesting brief. What comes to mind for me while I was making my cup of tea and gathering my thoughts for two minutes is um, back to my stories kind of thinking. I think um, I think weed um, has got the wrong story. Um, mm. It's the comedy. 
it's kind of the tragedy, you know. It's like, oh, it's all about it. It's a joke. Weed's a joke, and everyone everyone talks about stoners, and it's. I, I think I think we need to flip that. And I kind of took inspiration from what you just said about hemp um, yeah. coming across. It's actually the most rational thinking man's product in the world. Um, so maybe so may, may, maybe if we kind of go, what what story is the world and Australia telling about weed today? Mm. It's the comedy, as I say. It's um, you know, it's a bumbling fool. Think of the comedy archetype um, or the comedy story. You know, he think of the NRL as the classic comedy, or the BBC. <laughs> you know, kind of bumbles along, makes monumental yeah. f ups all yeah. the time. Yeah, but kind of gets there in the end, and everyone's kind of happy when they win, and that that's the comedy archetype. I think that's the perfect description of the NRL: bumbling, yeah. <laughs> bumbling idiots. I've heard the, the, I've heard NRL players described as orcs before, which I thought, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. But yeah, rugby league drunk. You know, that's it. So, so that's not good. I mean, how, how, how do we? How do? How does the government? You know, how does the government um, respond to the comedy or the bumbling fool? Not, not, not with any sort of seriousness. So, what I'm proposing, my kind of, and my insight is, weed is a great product with a very bad brand. Mm. It, the brand's wrong because the brand is the comedy. It's the comedy story, and that makes it a joke. That makes it unimportant. That makes it for idiots. So here's the strategy. What we're going to do, we're going to make it the thinking man's product. We're, gonna, we're actually going to double down and kind of go, very, very clever people, very clever people have done the work and have worked out that weed is actually a very good industry for Australia. So take the comedy right out of the equation and start talking to people and about people that are the cleverest Australians and put a rational argument to Australians. So go from the comedy to what I'm calling journey and return. We've gone out in the world, we have researched this thing within an inch of its life, it makes so much sense for Australia, so much sense for Australia. 15 prominent Australians have done the work for you and this is the story. This is why it's a great, a great industry for Australia. So it's kind of it's kind of risky in that people kind of go, ah, oh, it's a stoner's it's a stoner's product, and we we love that we love the comedy. We need to reframe that because that'll never win in Australia. It'll never win with the government. It'll never win with humans. I don't think it'll it'll win short term, but it, it isn't a long term sustainable story. I think this idea of journey and return. We have researched this thing. Mm. There are great practical uses for it. There are great medical uses for it, and a lot of clever people in Australia and around the world will present the facts to you in a simple, digestible fashion. You make up your mind as a clever Australian. I love that. So when you say it's the thinking person's product, you're going to champion the stories or the artists or the creators or the or whoever has used... Scientists. Right, oh, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of flipping, I'm flipping the problem, which is it's a bit of a joke, to yeah. actually it's a super serious solution to a super serious problem and use very clever people, much cleverer than the average Australian and much cleverer than me. For example, hemp is a very is a very good product for many, many reasons. I think we're, we're losing the discussion because it's, it's too trivialized. Yeah. We need to get back to the facts. Give people the facts about marijuana in a way, in an archetype that people go, I'd never thought of marijuana like this before. In fact, let's, ch- let's not call it weed. Weed is a joke. Yeah. Yeah. What is the medical name for this thing? Like, What is the serious name for this? Mm. And, and I, think, I think when you give people the ammunition to defend something with facts, they become much more confident about it. You can't defend a comedy mm. for very long. You can defend it in the moment, but you can't defend it over the long term. 
It definitely social socially normalizes the behavior if the smartest people in the room are doing this. You're like, oh, what, what, well, well that, this that, could that, help and, me. And that that could be an awesome strategy. Get Paul Keating to talk about why he thinks it's great for Australia. Yeah. Who, who, who's the most prominent Australian that we think we could get to talk about this? The cleverest Australian, the most, you know, the most unusual person that would be advocating for this because it makes Alan Jones. Hmm. Who would have thought Alan Jones would advocate for marijuana? You know what? It just makes sense. It makes sense for Australia. We're going to grow weed. No, we're going to grow medical marijuana out in the desert. It's great for rural Australia. It's great for all of Australia. I don't know. I think there's something interesting around flipping the archetype, flipping the story from comedy into something much more worthy, much more serious, and and, and make it a serious topic as opposed to a comedic topic. Really, Alan Jones, though? He's in a bit of hot water at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say, not the intellectual that came to mind (laughs) when we were talking about Australia's smartest people. Well, he's the most—he's the most conservative man I know. Yeah, no, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah you know, I get what you Tim, mean. Tim Flattery, um, the great scientist in Australia, the uh, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Blaney, the historian. Yeah, like people, Australians are people really. Kevin Rudd, clever thinking Australians yeah. that Australians really admire. It's easy for Hugh Jackman to talk about it, but who's a very clever Australian that no one would right. have thought about? Somebody wouldn't expect. Who's done yeah. the work for us? Who's yeah. actually done the work? Mm. Move it from an emotional, comedic story into a hard, facts-driven story. Could be cool. So I want to play devil's advocate a little bit here and be like, the science angle didn't really work very well for the global warming advocacy and and that story. Obviously, that's been wrapped up in a lot of political ideology that, and you know, the business cabals have had their hands in this. So are you? Are you saying we need to make this palatable for the business cabals and you know the the people on the very right hand side of things to be able to to kind of fly the flag and, and you know make something of it themselves? Or I I, I, I want to give the average Aussie uh, a defensible position at a water cooler when someone says you're crazy, mate. The kids are going to be stoned. Um, Rates of incarceration are going to go up. Is that no? It hasn't happened in Colorado. It hasn't happened in Canada. I, 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 wanna, I mean, it's actually it's a really emotional story. I, you know, I'm not saying let's make it a rational story. Mm, mm. Journey and return as as a story archetype is super super emotional. It's about the sage. I've gone out. I've researched this thing. I've come armed with the facts. So your stupid mm. story about kids are going to get stoned. It didn't happen in in Portugal. It didn't happen in Canada. It didn't happen in Colorado. In fact, smoke, rates of smoking have gone down. How do you answer that? So it's um, it's 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 not trying to win a rational argument. It's trying to win a story. Yeah. In an emotional way, but but re re typecasting a comedy into something defensible. Right. So at its heart, you're just making the product easier to buy for people. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm giving them a story which they can tell, to, a defensible story that they can defend and talk about. And that, I think, is how brands and public opinion wins. When I, when I can repeat a story that I sort of believe myself, that's when we're winning yeah. emotionally. And I like it because it also taps into what you were talking about before about the brand history. Because when it was legal in Australia in the 1920s, some of the best authors and writers used it as inspiration um, to create interesting pieces yeah. of work. And, and we, we know there are some great medical breakthroughs with I think seizures and people with epilepsy mm. and acute pain. I think there are some great facts. Yeah, yeah. It's just this kind of stoner, you know, l- losing your ambition. The sloth. The sloth and all this kind of story. And it's all this jokey, comedic, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think that's the right. It's a great. It's probably a great product with a very poor brand. Mm, to be honest, mm. it's been, 
it, its history is littered with uh, with bad branding. It needs. I'd, I'd walk away from weed as a description. Mm. I'd get to something way more descriptive of the medicinal purposes yeah. um, of of the product and. Start 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 a, start a different conversation about marijuana because the conversation at the moment I think would fail based upon its past its past story. Yeah, I think the thinking man's drug is a great bar in defense. Yeah, I think so, and, and it's emotional. It sounds rational. Yeah. It's super super emotional. It is. It's super emotional. It's about creativity, uh, I, I, and I want to be I, I want to be clever. I, I, mm. I want to be in the know about something that uh, you know is is highly topical. Well, it's definitely better than Snoop Dogg did it, so <laughs> that's my reasoning. Please, please <laughs> Which, explain, Vince. Uh, that's the that's kind of the, the entire United States uh, approach to marijuana. I feel at the I, moment. I, I don't, what's the Snoop Dogg approach? Oh, uh, so <laughs> basically, <laughs> Snoop Dogg is the poster boy for weed in the in the in the United States and in California, and everything has names like uh, AK forty seven for different strains of weed or purple haze and the, you know throwbacks to the old funk and soul and all of that type of thing but that's not going to fly in australia is it because those cultural icons don't exist quite as um you know uh, they're not they're not part of our cultural lexicon mm. as strongly as they are in the states and, and, and I, th- I think once again that reinforces the psychedelic yep. mood altering which is which is not what the story about the story is about medicine and um you know and 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 there, I think there's a much better story to tap into than than just mind altering substance, yeah, and psych, psychedelica, you know, whatever 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 Snoop Dogg story is. <laughs> Sweet ass. So when the Victorian government inevitably comes to uh, use this piece of work, we'll uh, try and get you uh, a little bit of commish on the side. Fantastic. That'll be awesome. If not a lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, and it's not weed anymore. We got to come up with a new name for that. Maybe that's the next marijuana. Brief. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Leif Stromness, thank you so much for being part of Son of a Pitch podcast. Um, obviously, a lot of people are going to learn from this, and we much appreciate your time. Guys, thank you very much. I thought that was really professionally handled, professionally done, and I'd offer you both a job tomorrow. Oh, oh brilliant. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Liv. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it at that. Yes. Blushing. You have been listening to a Son of a Pitch podcast. My name is Vince. And my name is Max. And we're both planners living in Sydney, Australia. A big thanks to Helga Diamond and Miami Ad School for supporting the show. And if you want to get that $100 fee waived for Miami Ad School, please drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcastsoap at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Chillin'. You son of a pitch.